Hello and welcome to Deep Roots, the podcast brought to you from Oak Hill College, where we have conversations about theology and ministry. My name is Tim Ward and I'm one of the lecturers here, and I'm joined today by uh, Drs. Sidney Tooth and David Shaw, who both teach New Testament and Greek here. And we're talking John's Gospel, which I've preached on from time to time, but both of you teach courses on it here. So it's going to be great to hear from you lots about John's Gospel. Now, of course, John's Gospel, there is so much we could talk about. We could have multiple episodes on this. Um, just tell us, um, which particular topics are we going to focus in on today? Um, we are going to spend some time looking at characterization in John um, and get into a bit of reading John alongside the Johannine epistles as well. We, Tim, we, we threw out <coughs> a few different topics. You, you liked the thought of characterization and thought that would be a helpful thing, given how we sometimes approach John. Just Yeah, that's true. Um, here's a question that in rehearsal, David, I was going to ask you and you thrown back at me. No. <laughs> Nice move. I can see you coming. <laughs> but it's fine. I yeah. Characterization. I mean it's true, isn't it? In the last is it the last 30, 40 years in gospel scholarship, but actually scholarship right across biblical narrative, there's been quite a move to think about how characters work within the narrative. Hmm. Uh, I guess within the broad heading of of narrative criticism. And is that true? That's been a move in the last 30, 40 years? Yeah, so um, Alan Culpepper, Anatomy of the Fourth Gospel, is probably yep. the kind of, I, th I think that's the first big salvo. And that's that's a bit of a move away from trying to think about John's Gospel as um, a historical text to try and think about how we take apart the text and think about the communities that were behind it, and instead to read the text as a, as a literary artefact and to think about some of those categories of plot and, yep. um, and character. Mm. Yeah, I guess, and the way... I guess preaching and teaching and ministry from gospels is sometimes thought about in regard to the characters is you've kind of you've kind of got two choices you can do character study or you can do well I'm just going to expand this text as the text that it is um I'm interested in your comments from each of you on this I mean, I mean my sense is that thinking about how characters work actually within the warp and woof of the narrative itself can help just kind of cut through that and show that it's not it's not necessarily one or the other and actually to expand the text without paying good attention to character if the characters are strongly part of the narrative seems like a false uh, a false choice Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's if, if you're just focusing on it as character study, you're missing actually how John has woven in each of the characters and what's he doing with them? What is, what is he trying to get out of his reader by having these different characters? And actually by focusing on characterization, you can see the development of his narrative. You can see where he's what responses yeah. he might be trying to get us to have um, to each character and how they're portrayed. Yeah, that's right. I, th I think the um, John very often is doing, there are passages in John where so much of the work that he's doing in thinking how to form us, how to help us understand the significance of Jesus, is by presenting really quite close character studies. It, it's where John's gospel stands out in some ways, uh, um, one of the ways in which it stands out from the other gospels, the, the way in which he will do lengthy scenes where you've got Jesus interacting with a particular individual or an individual on their own interacting with with others and Jesus absent even for a time. So yeah, that seems that seems significant. I suppose one of the concerns about the thought of just doing character study um, that people might raise would be that it uh, uh, you know there's that, there's that famous Tim Keller clip that that used to do the range a lot that the that the um, the gospel isn't about you. It's not about you putting yourself in the shoes of this character or that character and being the hero or being the villain yeah, or something. It's not about you. It's about God. So preach God. Right. Mm. There's something surely helpful in that. There's there's something really helpful in, in not just thinking where where do I fit in this story without without thinking about what story this is telling about God and his his relation to us and so on. Uh, and and there are certainly I think parts of um, parts of the Gospels or other other places where to be too preoccupied with which character I'm supposed to be identifying with here would be a distraction. Um, and yet, um, in in so much narrative, John's Gospel in particular, that's that's really the the way in which we're invited to read. It seems to me. Yeah, there's there's a quote I really like on this uh, from a man called Daniel Doriani. He's written a nice book on application. So he's actually think, think in context just talking about 
application from scripture as a whole, but I think it, it applies quite nicely here, where he says, in a narrative, look for the action of God and the responses of people to that action of God as it comes into their reality and into their lives. And that, it seems to me, I mean, it's a simple thing to say, but it nicely shows you, if we are preaching what the text says about God, we are also going to be preaching what the text shows us about human reactions and responses to that divine action in the text, because that's how God has chosen to narrate it to us. Yeah, and I think, as you said, David, it is distinctive in John that you have these long individual scenes with characters as well. And um, you introduced me to a book chapter by Bauckham about individualism within John's gospel. Yeah, this is uh, Richard Bauckham. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Um, A really, really helpful chapter, just actually looking at um, what it means that Jesus meets each of these characters in their own context and situation um, and and what that means for the reader too about thinking about how do we individually encounter Jesus as well. Would you recommend that book if someone wanted to chase these things up further? Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's a collection of essays called Gospel of Glory. And inside there, there's a chapter called Individualism. Yeah, it's one of my um, one of my favorite reads on on John. Really helpful. Where um, if you hear individualism talked about in a lot of evangelical churches, generally, it's it's a pretty negative thing. We want to want to avoid individualism. Volkan's quite helpful to say there's a there's a right kind of individualism that comes through. Actually, to see Jesus encounters with individual people says individuals matter to Jesus. Mm, you you mm. see him interacting countlessly with with men and women in different circumstances. Um, there's there's something there of God's individual care where he knows his sheep by name. You see that worked out in the way that he interacts with individuals. But then the gospel doesn't just leave us as individuals. It does um, it, uh, it does provide, the gospel provides the power to draw us out from any sort of isolated, egotistical sort of individualism into a community of love but one in which we don't lose our individuality. We're not, um, we're not just absorbed into some mass either. So Borkman's writing on all of that, which is, um, which is a really helpful thing, I think. That's tremendous. Tremendous. Yeah, I, anything I read Richard Borkman having written about, he's always thought about it way harder than most other people, <laughs> even if you don't agree with him. Yeah, terrific. Okay, well, if that's characterization in general, David, you just got there a little bit into some of the specifics of John's characterization. So let's dive in. Um, Sydney, you wanted particularly to talk about chapter four, didn't you? Yes, yeah. So kick us off with that. I mean, there's there's so many different characters you could look at. Um, I'm trying to remember how many individual interactions there are. Um, but the Samaritan woman mm. is one of the, I think, most distinctive ones. Um, so in John 4, uh, you have Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman by the well. Um I think why I wanted to talk about it and think about it a bit is actually thinking about history of interpretation. So yeah, how have yeah, we yeah. treated that? Um, I don't know what your experiences of hearing it taught and preached in churches are, um, but mine has been quite often it. She's got this very sinful past, and, and yeah, that's yeah, it's, it's all it's all climaxing in. You've had a lot of blokes in your life, yeah. and this is the problem. I think what's helpful in in going through it and actually seeing how is Jesus responding to her. What what are what's John pulling out, as well as he's hmm. portraying it. Um, it's helpful to step back and think. Well, what are we reading in that's not there? Yeah. Um, and um, I think thinking about this idea of her being sinful or having all these husbands, that is that doesn't seem to be Jesus's focus um, and it doesn't seem to be John's focus. Um, uh, it's just even thinking about the cultural background of it is, well, if a woman has had all these husbands in that time period, it's likely she's been abandoned okay. rather than that she's yep. just a loose woman flitting from one man to mm. another and mm. so so starting to get behind that a bit I think is really helpful um but also just thinking what images are there so you've got the image of the well um and that kind of touches into some of John pulling out Old Testament imagery and things too um but wells have this betrothal scene idea behind them you have Jacob's well uh is probably in view here um and it's picking up on language we've already had in John as well. You've had John 2, the wedding at Cana. You have in John 3.29, okay. yeah, yeah. uh, John the Baptist has just said, I'm I'm like the bridegroom's friend preparing the way. And so this is sort of 
preparing us, preparing the way for us to start seeing some further betrothal, bridegroom, Jesus as the bridegroom imagery. Mm. Um, so how, how that works with the Samaritan woman is um, if she's representing Samaria and Jesus is a man from Judea coming, and this is a betrothal scene of the two of them coming together. Uh, this is um, Mary Callow's done a lot of work on this. Of actually, this is the uniting of the two kingdoms again, the north and the south coming together. Jesus making his people one. The dialogue does end with her stressing, doesn't it? You, you Jews and we, you Jews worship there. We Samaritans worship here. That's quite strong towards the end. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So there are there are lots of clues that build up to to that sort of characterization of Jesus as the bridegroom. So by the time you get to John four, in the ways that Sydney said, he's he's been developed as the the bridegroom. To then to have that scene set up with the well um, and the, um, the the seeking after water. If you're familiar with lots of those narratives from Genesis of people seeking um, seeking brides, um, then you'd see. Um, you'd see some parallels there, in particular to a noonday scene. So that's um, that's particularly um, reminiscent of the Jacob narrative. Yeah. Uh, and so, so there are some hints there that that that's how these characters might be might be functioning. Um, when you when you set the the woman next to Nicodemus in John three, um, you've got some interesting comparison and contrast. Again, it's it's one of the ways that John will help you work out what do I make of this character to to set at least some characters up in pairs. Nicodemus, the insider, the kind of heart of the temple and Jerusalem establishment, the Samaritan woman um, on on the edge of things. Um, you've got a you've got a man and a woman. You've got a a nighttime scene with Nicodemus and a noonday scene with the woman. So you're being invited to see them in in their contrasting um, responses to Jesus, but also in their in their social status. So the the fact that this is a woman, the fact that this is a, a Samaritan. Those things are being highlighted for us as, as part of the significance. Um, so, yeah, that, that sort of builds that picture. Um, yeah, and I, I mean, I guess it's setting the scenes. There's sort of what's happening um, in John 4. Um, if, we're, if we want to go back to characterization and think about that mm. uh, more specifically, I think the other things that are really interesting is the woman's clearly trustworthy. That She goes back to the town, tells the townspeople, I've... I've found this man who's t- told me everything I've ever done come see him and they all come out um so there is I, I think that that pushes back at some of this idea that she's she's very untrustworthy or um anything but actually she is someone that they want to listen to um and mm. then thinking about how characterization works for us as the readers she seems to be set forward in contrast to Nicodemus as mm. actually this is this is a good ex- example of discipleship is she's she's heard this. She may not have the full picture, but yep, she's yeah, certainly yeah. grasped a lot of Jesus's identity. Gone back and told people about it, and they come and and there is quite a great response among the Samaritans after that. Hmm. So I suppose one of the um, is this helpful to say? In some ways, everyone is going to do characterization. Everyone is everyone is going to read these texts and find some way to draw some conclusions. You just you have to in John's gospel yep. to yep. to come away with some sense of what is what is the role of this woman and and as we've said the the history of interpretation is is just really mixed in it Calvin for example says um well she's had five husbands clearly then she's argumentative and difficult to live with um as if as if that's the only kind of way that you might um you might interpret that situation um the ways in which she would be far more vulnerable in the ways that that sin is expressed um would be um, just as easy just as plausible ways to kind of explain her circumstances. But you you read it in the context of John and you realise here in some ways is a, is a model response to Jesus. Um, you see, uh, as we said, um, him interacting with her, her going away from that and telling her townspeople and being a, a kind of model witness. So there's, there's some of the way in which she's just a, a model disciple. And that's something that others in historical readings of, of John have picked up on um, John Chrysostom in his sermons on on her praises her as a great model of faith. Mm. It's a really it's a really distinctive um, emphasis in his stuff. But then, as we've we've said, it's it also as well as just giving you a model response to Jesus. It does also build this picture of Jesus as the one who's come to gather not just not just Judah but Samaria, um, and um, and so 
that that openness to to whole variety of yeah, meanings yeah. and significances to a story. Yeah. It's yeah. challenging. I um yeah, it's one of it's one of the things I most love about John's gospel. It's one of the things having been having teaching it for some years now, still feels slightly out of grasp. Slightly there's just always more. Well, yeah, partic- I mean, that's a lot of people's experience, particularly with John's, mm. particularly with John's gospel. Uh, yes, I, I've lately been reading Augustine's sermons on John, and he he's also very strong on the, the Samaritan now represents the foreigner. So, so this is in effect the marriage of Christ and 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 the church drawn from all nations. Mm. That's I mean, he doesn't particularly make much of the bridegroom Im- imagery on the surface, but that's clearly in the background for the way he's interpreting this. Mm. Um, you know, a thought that's occurring to me as we're talking about this, so we're talking about potentially some uncertainties around interpretation and characterization. Is it this? Is it that? Or is it explicitly ambiguous? And, I mean, just on practic- some practicalities of ministry, you know, someone preparing a Bible study on this, or even just having a quiet time on it, or a sermon or something, is often needing to get something, or they feel they need to get something definite in a very limited number of hours. But with characters, it can often feel like, yeah, to, to what extent is the woman? It might be that she has been abused by others. But yet she does say, everything I've ever done, and there is a strange, strange tradition that says, no, there is an element in which she's not entirely exemplary although she then becomes an exemplary witness. So there are all these ambiguities around. How does someone who is not writing a PhD on this passage, but is they've got a small number of hours in which to produce some word ministry in which they can't really stand there and go, well, on the one hand and on the other hand, but I don't really know. I, that's a massive question, but it, mm. how are we going to go about that kind of thing? Yeah, so I think in in John's Gospel, <clears throat> a <coughs> excuse me, a close reading without a PhD still helps you work out. I think the significance of um, of the vast majority of characters in the way that um, there is there is clearly some intentional pairing between Nicodemus and um, and the Samaritan woman, um, the blind man in John nine being a really clear model. Um, witness under fire, testifying to what Jesus has done for him. Um, so, um, not not every character is so laden with ambiguity that it's just very hard to make a judgment about it. Yeah. Um, some of the characters, I think, are, and that's that's really the point. It's it's not a shortcoming of us and our prep that we haven't been able to clearly identify somebody. So, the, I mean, one of the one of the criticisms that sometimes made about John's gospel is is that it's very black and white. There's light and there's darkness, and um, there's uh, there's and um, there's good and there's evil. Uh, there's life and there's death. And John does God, deal God's in, your father or the devil's your father. Mm, exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. It all seems very black and white. And actually, what a lot of this characterization does is um, is soften that and acknowledge that actually, um, particular people at particular points in their life. Um, are going to be somewhere on that spectrum, are going to be moving a little more towards the light or um, or a little bit more towards the darkness. And that that's okay. Um, I think there's... And that's just tr- true to life. So um, the an example would be Nicodemus, who, at least in, in John 3, um, is clearly... Um, uh, in his response to Jesus, um, he he's not able to grasp the things that a teacher of Israel ought to be able to grasp, mm-hmm. and uh, and something of uh, there is something of the night about him in the sense that he is he's left in the dark. Um, but come John chapter seven, Nicodemus is there, and he's now the voice pushing back a little bit on the other Jewish leaders and their plans for Jesus and understanding of him. Um, come chapter nineteen, he's there, and he's um, maybe doing more than he knows, but. Yeah, but but providing some sort of signal of Jesus's worth and kingship in in the things that he takes to the tomb. So there's there's some sense of people make progress. Um, one encounter doesn't tell you everything about somebody. There's, there's just quite a lot about mm. life and ministry to learn from from that. Yeah, which is maybe a good metaphor for approaching John in general. Is at each encounter with John, 
just like all of scripture it's it's you're gonna get some things but not everything from yeah. it um and so so for the person trying to prepare it's okay if you're not getting every nuance or every bit of it actually um take what you can and and go with it and um god is speaking yep. through that yeah that's really helpful surely do we, we the point to worry about ourselves is if we think we've kind of got John's nuances all sorted out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned Nicodemus there. Actually, just as you were speaking, I remembered reading a book um, a year or so ago, which I found massively helpful. Uh, I think it's called Interpreting Gospel Narratives. And he, the author did a really nice thing with Nicodemus. It's by, by a man with a splendid, or nearly splendid name of Timothy Wiarda. Mm. W-I-A-R-D-A, which is... He overshoots a great name by two letters. You, know, <laughs> yeah. you, can't, you can't have everything. But I, again, if, if people want to, uh, anybody watching wants to pick that up, um, I, it, I, it wasn't terribly expensive. And I found that massively helpful uh, in just doing some very, very careful reading, mm. of, of particularly of, of characterization. David, you mentioned the blind man very briefly. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love to hear you talk a bit more about characterization of him. Okay. So yeah, we're into chapter nine here. We're into chapter nine. Uh, I um, maybe we should do play this game later on of like who's your favourite character in John's Gospel. The blind man, hands down, is my favourite character in John's Gospel. You know, second to Jesus. Uh, so, uh, again, one of the questions that still revolves around. I, I remember reading somebody on the significance of anonymity in John's Gospel. Um, if you've got help for me now or later, please do help me. The idea that. The the posit the most positive characters in John's Gospel are anonymous rather than named mm. is a theory that's got some legs. You think about the beloved disciple, yeah. um, you think about the blind man, you think about the Samaritan woman. Um, whereas you think some of the named characters um, are are more negative in their characterization. Um, so um, Nicodemus, arguably, in contrast to the Samaritan woman, um, Caiaphas, and and others. Um, it doesn't work entirely. You've got you've got a Mary and a Lazarus and a Martha and a Peter, um, but the um, but the significance of the the blind man, though he's not named, he's given this wonderful long section. Um, in in some ways, um, he he stands for all of us. Um, someone who is brought to sight, um, and I mean certainly just then your your kind of um, your thought about coming back to John each time and discovering a little bit more sight and um, and and God kindly illuminating us a little more um, there's just there's a lovely way in which that happens through that narrative precisely through the trouble he gets in so he has been healed by Jesus um, he's he's kind of asked to to explain this to defend it and and through that whole process he grows in confidence um, he grows in in clarity about who Jesus is. Um, and uh, and in lots of ways he becomes um, a model for um, for every believer to endure the kind of experience that Jesus prepares his followers for in the upper room. So you know there in the upper room Jesus talks about this time when he's going to be absent, he's going to provide the Spirit, he's going to enable his people to witness and testify to a world that is going to hate them. And I mean this is uh, this is some some stuff that Peter Lightheart has written really well on a little book called Deep Exegesis. He asks, what, why do you get such a long scene there in John 9? Why, mm. why does the blind man have such time? And why does Jesus disappear for so long? He's absent from the narrative for an extraordinarily long period of time. Mm. And it's, it's precisely so that you get this little anticipation of the church's own experience of coming under fire, being called upon to give testimony to Jesus and experiencing something of the irrationality of those who are refusing to to listen to testimony. He says it, his parents say it, um, really obvious, this guy has been healed by Jesus. Um, and um, and so, so there's something just, just very powerful and wonderful in the way that that he, he presents the calling of the church. Tremendous, tremendous. I got, I got so many questions over reading characters and particularly in John, I, how, we're often building when we're getting to grips with what a, a text might be telling us and showing us about a particular character. We're piecing a, a composite picture together out of 
small details in the text out of a big picture of the flow of the narrative. And at the same time, because these are people, we are always reading things in. So, Sidney, I mean, you quite rightly said with chapter four, this is there's a whole tradition of just reading in she's had five men, and so I just, without even thinking about it, I just sort of reach into my cultural view of the world and go, well, she must be this kind of person or that. How do we... What, what do we have to do more and more to be better readers of how characters are presented to us in Scripture? What are the things we need to do? What are the things we need to be aware of? That's such a good question, and I mean, in some ways, Tim, I'd love to hear what you think about it. Let me uh, let me try one thing in, and then let's hear from you guys. Uh, John, I think... Um, is particularly rich in symbolism, and that does give you a steer on how to read. So I would feel less confident about um, our reading of the the Samaritan woman um, if um, there hadn't been six water jars in John 2. Um, so uh, in John 2, the wedding at Cana, you've got Jesus who's going to turn um, water into wine, and six um, ceremonial water jars are filled up. Um, and then um, turned to to wine. The the fact that there are six um, again in in John's gospel, you get so many sevens as a pattern of completeness, um, and you get a repeated pattern of sixes as signifying something that that comes short of that, that stops short of perfection and completion. Um, so I think as um, as Jesus teaches about the perfect cleansing that he brings, to have six stone water jars that bring an incomplete and inadequate sort of cleansing is a is a striking thing. Mm. Um, to then meet a woman who's had five husbands and the the man that she's now with is not her husband, which gets you to six. And then you have a betrothal scene and she meets Jesus and he is the Messiah and the bridegroom. Makes you think we've we've seen again something of um, a um, a very uh, Jewish heritage, the the, the ceremonial waters um, that don't cleanse, um, something of um, her background and Jesus bringing the fulfilment and completion of that. Um, so John, in in a lot of those details, um, is um, is I think communicating a lot to us and and teaching us, schooling us in paying attention to those details. There are lots of examples I could give you where I'm still not quite sure what to do with it, this detail or that yeah, detail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but certain patterns emerge. That wouldn't be true for every narrative that you're reading. Yeah, yeah. Um, what would be, Tim, what would be, what in your mind would be just some some broader guidelines to, to grow in this habit, this skill? I'm with you, really. We, just, we have to become better, better and better listeners to the text that is in front of us. And that it's hard to come up with a just a blueprint for that because... John writes differently from others. So it's learning to tune our ear to how, how has he written? How, how did the Holy Spirit cause him to write as the writer that he was? Um, how has he put down these patterns of symbolism? Now, particularly that will be a challenge for us when there's a way of writing that doesn't come naturally to us because of our cultural background or, or mindset. And, I, and that is where knowing how texts have been interpreted by people from different cultures in the past and different cultures around the world now is enormously helpful um i mean i can remember i mean this is john this is luke but a, a while ago sitting with a group of um brits and some people from africa reading from luke one elizabeth and zechariah and the brits immediately assumed that the passage was there to focus on zechariah and didn't really pick up about what Elizabeth says about shame around uh, disgrace taken away. Mm. Because, of course, on the whole, contemporary Brits are not linking childlessness with shame. Mm -hmm. They'd link unwanted childlessness with grief and sadness, but not with public shame. But the Africans around the table, when asked, what's this about, were just zooming in on Elizabeth because childlessness in their culture still has an, an element of public shame around it. Mm. So there's an example where 
just blinded by cultural lenses. So, so what can we do? Well, I think more as far as we are able, reading commentaries which have, which give some access to the history of the interpretation of passages, but also and more as we know, more and more of these are being published now, which give insight into how people from different cultures read this because. Okay, they will have their own blind spots, but they'll be different from ours, and they will see things that mm. that we don't. Mm. That's why I think why your Samaritan woman example is is such a brilliant one. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think kind of picking up on that, some of what I've found really helpful is um, there have been a few like commentaries uh, by some female scholars yeah. that have opened some up, some stuff up for me. Um, mainly around the Samaritan woman, but other things throughout John. And so I think that's the same, you know, different gender, different culture, different, yeah. if we if we can be hearing each other's yeah, yeah. voices on this, um, do that wanna, helps us. Do see. you want to say a bit more about that, about how female eyes just ca- might approach chapter four differently? Um, yeah, I think, I think even just if, if you're reading what Calvin has to say about it, um, it, 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 Frankly, it hurts actually to think. Well, here's here's a female character interacting with Jesus, and um, as a woman myself, you, you think that's is that really? I'm, I'm I'm not sure that's what Jesus is getting at. Um, and and so pushing into it a bit and saying actually, what are the other details there? Now, I I should obviously have my own hermeneutics of suspicion against my own reading and my sure. own feelings, yeah, but yeah, yeah. I think. Um, yeah, I think it just it just opens up those questions of is this actually where the text is going and what it's actually leading into, or is this a result of um, misogynistic readings or cultural assumptions? Or and I think that's if if we're if we're approaching the text thinking, am I reading something into this? Am I missing something? Um, I think that's a really helpful guard to importing your own ideas. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, and. I mean, lots of these stories are just are designed to subvert what would be very common expectations of how this story is going to go. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, being being alert to that and allowing myself to be surprised and not to insist, I know how this story goes. So, you know, that's um, you would just ex- expect um, Nicodemus to be to be the to give him. It'd be very easy to give him the benefit of the doubt because. He's the kind of knowledgeable professional theologian in in that sort of setting, um, and uh, and and actually, what um, what these narratives are very often doing are overturning those sorts of expectations. I mean, the Luke birth narrative is a really nice example of that too, mm. where um, you've got another real insider. You've got Zechariah there in the temple. His response is unbelief, and he's struck dumb. Yeah. Compare that to Mary, who in lots of ways is. Um, much less the likely character to to respond in that way, um, in uh, not um, yeah not not having the advantages that that Zechariah does, um, and yet there is the the kind of shining and immediate um, response of faith. Um, it's yeah. beautiful. This is great stuff. I mean, the, as you were talking, I mean, I've been interested in characters for a while, from sort of from my side of things. As I've been as you've been talking, I've been thinking. It may, might it be that one of the reasons why the Lord has given us so many of these narratives with characters in his word to us, it's, you know, it's, it's a shortish book and it is his word for all time, for all peoples. There will be many, many different kinds of character for many, many different kinds of people to see aspects of themselves as, as a mirror held up to them. And so I, I'm, I'm just being the person I am. I will read some characters better than others. And other people will read other characters better than I do, which I think you know. If I'm a preacher or a pastor, that I, I seems to me I've got to be listening to how, as far as possible, to how a lot of different people, mm. who are believers, how they interact with those characters. Sometimes I may think somebody's missed something in the text, but other times I'll hear someone who's just different from me, saying, "Well, I, well, I see this, and I would never have thought of it, but but there it is." And you look again and go, "Actually, that re- that really is there." And so, what? Um, just press that a bit further. Do you, is the kind of sense then that there's something for everybody? God has given such a kind of gallery of characters that there's somebody for everybody to relate to, or um, should I? Um, am I being pushed to relate to characters who I wouldn't naturally be drawn to? Just 
you, yes, absolutely, yes, absolutely, because it seems yeah. to be the 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 relating to characters thing is just happening all the time subconsciously, even if someone kids themselves they're so scientifically, analytically minded that that's not happening. If they are a human being, they are relating to characters, so you might as well acknowledge that you are. Hmm. Get it out there on the table. Um, and if you're not relating at all, you check your pulse. There might be a problem. Um, and some of that relating, then then what do you do? Then do you, then you test it by the text. This is my gut reaction in relation to this character, as in, oh my goodness, that's me, or, oh, I'm really concerned now. I didn't think I was like that, but maybe this is holding up a mirror, and I kind of am, or. This isn't me at all. I don't do that kind of thing. What is this all? Oh, oh, that's obviously her over there, revealing how annoying she is, or, or whatever it is. Hmm. Get all that out there on the table, and then just, in light of that, just begin now to ask yourself, is this text revealing things that are true about me that I didn't think were true, but, but maybe they are? Or this is, is showing me something me, about myself, but me, I'm more like woman in chapter four than I am like Nicodemus in chapter three, as the characters are presented here. But my view of myself that I'm a Nicodemus in the world, not a apparently irrelevant Samaritan woman in the world. Mm-hmm. So, it, so yeah, there'll be a holding up a mirror. I now see things about myself, but there will be a pushing. You, you, you don't see yourself this way, do you? But, but actually. The Lord's truth about you is bigger than than you would acknowledge. Huh. I, I'm, I'm kind of rambling, but that kind of area. What, I mean, does what do you make? What sense do you make of that, Sydney? Um, yeah, I think I think that is definitely one way characterization is helpful, and I think even pushing beyond that, it's it's not even just about understanding ourselves through it either. I think one of the things the different characters in John's Gospel can help with is actually thinking about. Uh, all the sorts of people you're going to encounter in ministry or in life and actually their different responses to you, to uh, you talking about Jesus with them is, I I think that is a really helpful thing in John is what you you were talking about, the sort of ambiguity and development um, and, and like with Nicodemus moving it's not just black and white. It's not just you're either a believer or a non-believer. You're not either just in the light or in the darkness. Some people are moving yeah, yeah. towards the light. Some people move towards the light or seem to and then move back to the darkness. And and I think that's another way of characterization helps us understand what's yes. happening in the world um, yeah, is yeah. actually, ah, okay, I've seen that response in my parish or in my yeah, small group. Yeah. Um okay, I, I kind of have a better understanding of this is how some people are going to respond. That, yeah, thank you. That's hugely helpful, what this reveals about others. When I look, we could spend more time on characterization, but we said we're going to shift gear. So shorter time now. Um, John's Gospel in relation to the letters. Somebody, yes. somebody kick us off. Well, let's draw. We could draw one line straight towards that theme from what we've been talking about yep. so far, which would be just the potential for... Um, you to see those sorts of individual responses and reactions in the people that you minister to, um, as well the opportunity of all of God's people to play their part in in themselves, becoming characters, becoming people worthy of imitation and study. Mm. So mm. Um, in in three John that theme comes through really quite clearly, where you've got um, the the language of imitation. Um, John writes there, imitate the good, but either either side of that of that instruction that could be quite abstract the good um, in some abstract way. He's actually talking about either being a Demetrius or being a Diotrephes, either being somebody who is a a model believer in the way that they extend hospitality and support faithful faithful believers, or somebody who loves to be first, like a Diotrephes. And so one of the the lovely things about um, the letters is you see that same dynamic continuing on of different responses being worked out to the gospel and um, and um, the, the cast of characters extending to um, uh, to um, to John himself in his ministry to a Demetrius to mm. a Diotrephes. Mm. Yeah and so I mean this is something we talk about in class um, is is reading 
John's gospel alongside the letters yeah, and actually yeah, yeah. thinking about how do you do that and, and how do those go together and, and doing some practice and actually um, reading them together. And I think one of the things you see is at the end of John, you get um, the statement of, you know, those who haven't seen, um, blessed are those who haven't seen and believe. Yeah. And, and the letters move into that territory of... Um, working with groups of Christians who have come to believe but haven't weren't there in the upper room oh, with Jesus. Okay. Yes. Um yeah, yeah. so so one of the one of the exercises we did in class was have the upper room discourse uh, from John thirteen to seventeen read alongside one John and actually thinking about well how do these inform each other? How do you how do you think about them? Um and there was one article we went through um by a guy called John Yared, is that John, John Yared. Hmm, not sure. I think you sent it to me. Okay. Um, so <laughs> I forgot <laughs> we'll, a lot of things. We'll look back and uh, find it. But um, he, what he does is he picks up on these themes that are in the upper room discourse in mm. particular, but are also in one John, and and just sort of put them alongside each other and say, well, how how do you how how do these help sharpen? I think he he has this imagery of um, reading the two alongside each other is like. Uh, looking through a diamond as things become clearer they enhance each other Um, and so that's what we tried to do is how do these enhance each other Uh, and two particular themes that really uh, stuck out are um, if you break the upper room discourse sort of in half it's uh, like love of God and then the hatred of the world Mm -hmm, is mm -hmm. two big themes well those come out all across one John is the world hates you or the hatred of the world or hating brothers and sisters and that yes. that sort of theme yeah, yeah. um and actually part of part of having the upper room discourse and having that right next to one john is well jesus said that was going to happen so for for those of you now experiencing this hatred of the world that's not that shouldn't be a surprise mm. jesus said that to his okay. disciples and said this was coming yeah yeah um let's let's think back to that and and um think through what what does what are we promised to help us through that? Well, we have the Holy Spirit um, uh, with us as we continue to testify to a world that hates Jesus. And so um, I think two and three, John, move into this even more about the kind of practical outworkings of that. But one, John, is picking up on that statement from the Upper Room Discourse in the same way it's picking up on the command to love, um, a new command I give you, love one another. And what we did in class is think, well, what you, you get statements in one John about what that looks like because it's this is yep. how we know love. Yeah. Um, Jesus died for us. If you think back to the upper room discourse in John 13 in particular, one of the examples of love is the foot washing mm-hmm. scene. Yeah. And that is this example of Jesus loving people who are about to betray him and washing their feet yep. um, with Judas and, and Peter with his upcoming denial as well. Um, and so when you have these commands in 1 John of loving one another and loving each other, it is a, it's a command to serve in the way that Jesus served in okay. humble um, service of each other. So uh, th- those were a few examples we worked through in class. Um, and y- you've done a bit on 2 and 3 John and sort of how that takes forward a lot of what happens in John's gospel yeah. too. Actually, just before it'd be great to go there. Could you, just could I uh, just yeah. ask you a bit more? Just reflecting on on what's going on there. That's that's really interesting. So, have I have I got this right? Effectively, what's going on there is you've got. I mean, obviously, one John. It's not a very long letter, so there's not lot, John doesn't take a lot of time to spell out what he might mean by particular things. You've got these commands: love one another. Now, someone could, picking that up could preach or teach that and just fill in the content of what it means to love each other in all sorts of ways that just kind of occur to them in the moment the bee in their bonnet or the thing that they think their home group needs to really hear that or something and what you're doing there is say well now read this in light of john's gospel and the command love one another now comes with a certain content to it I i mean would you would you go as far as saying read those commands in the letter in light of chapters 13 to 17 and that now that now is the core content of what he means in the letter or is it is it an option for sharpening i mean how mm. how tightly do you want to read them together 
Um, yeah, I think I I think it does set the context for it in that um, if if you're going back to the upper room discourse, that is where the command to love is given, yeah. and 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 that is where the the new command yeah. um, comes from. And so mm. so I do I do think you need that context and that sharpening. Um, now I think it can be sharpened and it can be applied in. Yeah. Obviously, it's going to look different in different contexts of what that on the ground means, but setting it within the big framework of service down to oneself, that following Jesus's example, that's what you see really sharply in yep. John 13 to 17. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. Thank you. So I, I butted in. You were going on to two and three, John. No, no, I think you just, yeah, you see exactly those those same things where um, in, in one John, in two John in particular, you get that repeated love one another command uh, to walk in love um, that's that's what the father has commanded in 2 John and that's um, that is a lovely um, way that the Christian life gets distilled down really beautifully and really simply so I think it's one of the one of the gifts of something like 2 John is to say to God's people you might you might have been trained to think that God expects you to do a hundred things a day um, and that that's a measure of success today and You'll get to the end of your day thinking, I've not, um, I've not managed that many things, or I'm at a stage in life where actually I can, I can just about manage to feed my baby and and get the washing done, or um, my body is now in a state which means I can hardly do anything in a day. Um, for for two John to take the Christian life and boil it down to love one another, and and to walk in love, that that three four mile an hour pace of doing one thing that the Lord has commanded us to do. There's something really beautiful about the way that that gets distilled down. But as, as Sidney's been saying, the John's gospel has to be the way that we interpret what it and what that means to mm. so that as you as you were saying, Tim, we don't fill that command to love one another with whatever we think that might mean. When John says that, he's relying on everything that's come before in the gospel. It this love is a self-sacrificial, costly, love till the end sort of love. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, so you need the gospel to understand um, 2 John and 3 John. 2 John and 3 John help you see some of the benefits of, of boiling it right down to that. In the end, love one another. Um, but they also, um, they do help you move into that really contested stage of church life when people are teaching falsely. And so if in the upper room it might feel as if the church is the community of love and the world is this place of hatred, actually two and three John and, and one John all take you into this territory where, no, there are those who are going to be fo- teaching falsely within the church. Yeah, yeah. And that you'll get, there's going to be hatred and opposition and division and just ambiguity. Mm-hmm. Who are the good guys here? Who are the bad guys here? Do you believe... You know, Diotrephes is speaking against Gaius in 3 John. Gaius is um, speaking about um, Diotrephes. Who's in the right? Who's in the wrong? Who can you trust? Those um, those, those letters help you realise all of that great theology of John's Gospel comes to land in some of that dust, some of that mess within the church as well as beyond it. And that's that's something that I, I would imagine resonates pretty well for a lot of people in ministry. That's, that's tremendous. Yeah, I like those thoughts. So just as you were talking, I, all sorts of thoughts were sparking. I, I mean, in one John, you know, they they went out from us, but mm-hmm. they were not of us. So they seem to be of us, and they're going out, should that they weren't. Well, you're straight into that's that's Judas, isn't it? And the yeah. is this right in one John? The hatred of the brothers and sisters is particularly it's those who will abandon them and move into error. Um, which is precisely what Judas does, mm-hmm. um, and it's those who will know, who will abide in the faith and abide with one another together in that, and then you're straight into um, the unity of the church themes, which you get towards the end of the upper room. Just so that's tre- that sounds tremendously fertile territory, which we don't have time to explore further now. I give each of you a chance. You may feel you've kind of said all you want to say, which is fine. But on either of the topics we've talked about, characterization or link with the letters, any final thoughts that occur to you that um, just maybe just drop a final bomb before we before we finish, or a final thought that would take something further? Uh, 
one of as you're trying to ask what is John doing by presenting you with this great cast of characters we've we've spoken a lot about it but um, maybe one extra thing would be um, to to call you to decision one of one of the things that John won't do um, is is let you hide mm. you you do need yourself to come to a decision you see in particular with the way that um, the crowd in John as a sort of character is always um, uh, fractured. What John does is with the crowd, he'll often tell you, well, within the crowd, some people are saying this and some people are saying that and some people are saying that. Yeah. Um, he'll very often end a section like that with a question where somebody's just left a question hanging. Who is this and what sort of person can do this? Yeah. And the question just hangs. And so one of the things to, to pay attention to in all of that is how I'm being invited to make my own decision. I'm, I'm to identify with these different responses to Jesus in different ways but I also need to come to my own decision. And, and John is calling me to that. Great, thank you. Oh, I should have gone first. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you, you can have that one too if you want, that's fine. Yeah. Ditto. Um, I, I, yeah, I think I think just, I, I, I love John. I, I've had such fun teaching mm. John, really, really digging in. And I think just, I, I, I think almost more just repeating a point that mm. I've already said of, just keep digging in um and mm. that that's gonna that's gonna involve the call to decision but i think it's gonna it's gonna help um sharpen and enrich your own experience of god's words and who god is and and um i think how to, how to share jesus with others too i think as you're thinking about um different responses and things like that is actually just thinking about how jesus met you in your individual circumstance and helping others have that encounter as well mm. wonderful so much more about john we could say but that this has been enjoyable thank you great to have you with us for this episode of deep roots we hope there's been uh, good and fruitful things in it for you in your own reading of john's gospel and ministry from john to others uh, there'll be a blog coming up uh, in a week or two's time on the oak hill website that'll just take one or two of these things around john's gospel a bit further. Uh, we've also been planning the next few episodes. I'm not going to let the cat entirely out of the bag, but we've got some very interesting things coming up around the shape of patterns in church services. There's a church nearby here which has done something really interesting. We're going to be thinking around that, plus also um, more great goodies from the uh, Oak Hill faculty and their tremendous biblical and theological learning. So uh, see you soon. <laughs>